The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. Well, let's open our Bibles, if you would, and uh, go to Romans chapter 6, our past three messages on Sunday night have been about the Christian's victory over sin. A victorious Christian life is one in which sin is conquered. Uh, The doctrine that we're talking about is sanctification, which is the holiness of the child of God. Now, in the Old Testament, priests were required to make various sacrifices that were intended as acts of purification before they could go in to perform their duties in the tabernacle and in the temple. The priest himself had to be purified from his sins. And that was a a type of the Lord Jesus Christ who was the one who is sinless, the sinless sacrifice for us. And so the priest representing the Lord, before he could ever make a sacrifice for others, he had to show that his sins had been atoned for. And then the priest would enter in and he would do the various works that are to be done in the tabernacle and temple, making sacrifices for the rest of the people. And of course that showed uh, Christ's work of, uh, of dying as a sacrifice and atonement for our sins in order that we might appear holy before God. Well, in the New Testament, as you know, we no longer make New Testament era, we no longer make those kinds of sacrifices, but we stu- still do make sacrifice. We crucify ourselves, the Word of God says. We offer ourselves as living sacrifices by, by giving ourselves completely to the Lord and surrendering to what He would have us to do. Now, that's reflected in the 12th chapter of Romans in those two verses that are very familiar to you, where Paul said, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that ye may prove with that good and perfect and acceptable will of God. So a self-sacrifice is what God requires of us, but that sacrifice is no good when we harbor sin in our lives. And that's because God is not going to use us in His service any more than He would the Old Testament priest who didn't care to, didn't take the time to make that offering for his own sins before he began to make offering for the sins of other people. And so God, being a priesthood of Christ today, in the New Testament times, as each of us are, God is not going to use us while there is sin in our lives. And so sin is very important to the child of God in the New Testament that is in the respect that we must get rid of it in order to be pleasing to the Lord. Well, that's the subject that we're looking at again tonight. We're looking at sin, and we're going to approach the problem in a little bit different way as we look at the struggle that we have against it. Where does sin come from, and how is sin overcome? And I'm quite sure that the Holy Spirit has actually guided the timing of these messages to, coinc- uh, to uh, coincide with those that are, we've been giving on Sunday morning on the delusion of the devil, because that's the person that we contend with every single day of our lives as we have to uh, deal with this issue of sin. Uh, the devil doesn't cause sin, but he's the one who exacerbates the problem in the believer. 
So I do want you to note that, that Satan is not the cause of sin. I mean, the cause is that we have an inherent problem, and Satan just works with the material that's already there. So there is no one who can say, as I mentioned this morning, the devil made me do it. If you're a Christian, the devil can't make you do anything. You only do what the devil does as you surrender to what he wants you to do. Now, a lost person, that's a little bit different for the lost person because he has no power to resist the devil. With that inherent depravity uh, and no ability to overcome sin in his life, he can't resist the devil. He has no defense against him. And so the devil has no problem bending the will when there is no resistance. Now let's look at our text here in Romans chapter 6. And I, I want to start reading at verse number 11. Romans 6 verse number 11. Likewise, reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body, that ye should obey it in the lust thereof. Neither yield ye your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but yield yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for ye are not under law, but under grace. Now, a common misconception of those that are looking for a way out of their troubles is the belief that if they become Christians, that their lives will be better and all the problems of life will melt away and will disappear. And they're not really thinking about the sin problem. They're just thinking about the troubles that they're in at the moment. And uh, I've had many conversations with people that are laboring under this misconception of what it means to be a Christian. They come to church seeking a solution to the bad things that are happening in their lives. And they're quite sure that if they pay just a little bit of attention to God that God will change things for them, he will fix things for them. It might be a bad marriage, it can be a, a divorce, it might be alcohol, it might be drugs. You pick anything that people do, and they will concede that if they make some kind of a change in their life, if they give God some kind of due, then God is going to fix things for them. And so there are many people that have come to the point that they can't continue in the way that they're going. The stress of their lives becomes too great. They're unhappy. The marriage is failing. The job stinks. Their kids are driving them crazy. Just any number of things that people uh, talk about and so they want or have problems with. And so they tr want to try something different. And so they go to church because they think all is going to be well if they do. Now, I'm always careful in how I deal with people that are like that because there are plenty of churches that will gladly snatch up someone like that and begin to fill their ears with sweet nothings and tell people that God is their genie to get them out of their troubled times. Now, as much as I want people to be a part of Berean Baptist Church, I don't want anybody to come in under false pretenses. Becoming a Christian does not mean that all your troubles are going to go away. It doesn't mean that your marriage is going to be better. It doesn't mean that you're going to experience a wonderful plan for this life. Now, that might happen, but it might not happen. It might get much worse. Whenever believers and unbelievers are mixed in the same house, you can't always count on the unbeliever coming uh, over to your way of thinking. An unbeliever, whether it's your husband or your wife or your children, they don't see things the way that you see them. And you can't count on things getting better in the household when you decide that you're going to follow Christ. In fact, things can become much, much worse because you do. And that's because that other person or those others in the household don't have any interest 
Now, Christianity doesn't solve life's problems, but rather it gives us the ability to deal with those problems. And what it does, it rearranges things in our lives. It changes the focus of those things that make us content, things that really will make us happy. And so you begin to realize when you become a Christian that the problem, the root of the problem, is always sin that's in your life. Now, a person that becomes a Christian when he's first saved, he might not yet understand that and... So he comes into the Christian life thinking things are really going to be good. And he doesn't realize how, what a struggle it's going to be until this thing begins to sink in. That the, sink in. There is still a desire for sin that a person has when he gets saved. Bad habits that are developed are not done away with easily. Oh, I've heard a few stories of people that say, well, I got saved and immediately I, I stopped all the bad things that I was doing. I didn't have any desire for those things anymore. Well, that happens sometimes. But I don't think that's the regular course. When you get saved, you will find out that the devil very quickly starts to work on the old desires again. And what he wants to do is to pull you back into that old life again. And so there is this continual struggle. There's a fight every single day against the, the, the habits that you used to have. And this is why Paul said, we must crucify the old man. The old man has to be put to death. Now, in that passage where Paul talked about that in Ephesians, uh, he said there that what we have to do is put away lying. He says you need to put away anger. You need to put away filthy talk. And you may think, well, why is Paul saying that to Christians? Put away anger, put away filthy talk. Why does he say that to them? Because they were still doing those things. They were Christians, and they were yielding to the old lust of the flesh. They were struggling with sin, and so do we. And so it takes a constant effort to keep from returning to that old way of life. It's much, much easier to give in to what we did before than to struggle and fight against it every single day. And so we find that warnings about these things are frequent in the Scriptures, especially in the New Testament. Now the point is that the new life that we have in Christ does not eliminate the old nature. And neither does God instantly throw up a roadblock to sin... Whenever there's a temptation that comes into your life, God doesn't immediately stop that thing and say, don't do that. He says, don't do that, but he doesn't stop you from doing it. You, you have to decide that you're going to go the way that God wants you to go. And so when you come to that fork in the road that says you choose the bad way or you choose the right way, the good way, the right way, there's going to be a temptation to go the way that you always went before. And that temptation will be very strong. And so it's up to us to guard ourselves against sin and to call on the Lord to protect us from it. We ask Him to give us more grace, to lift us out of that temptation, and He does have the grace to do it. As Burke Parsons said, there is more grace in Christ than there is sin in you. Now Paul tells us here in Romans 6 that we are free from sin, we have been emancipated from it, but in order to maintain that freedom, we have to be completely submissive to God. Sin's allure is strong. And we know that from our studies on Sunday morning about Satan, that he's just too much for us to handle. So we have to know the enemy. We must know what he's capable of. He's a lion that seeks to devour you. He's waiting behind every door. He's hiding around every corner. He continually stalks his prey. And sooner or later, he will get you if you're not prepared and protected with God's armor. So our theme in these messages is living for Jesus. What does 
sin have to do with that goal that we're striving for, to live for Jesus? Well, sin strains the relationship that we have with the Lord. It, it, it strains that relationship, it bends it, but it will not break it. The relationship that we have with Christ can never be broken, but it does stretch. Our fellowship with Him stretches out. Our closeness to Him um, seems to wane at times. Our walk with Him is so affected at times that there are sometimes we just feel like we don't even know the Lord. Now, in our earlier study of 2 Peter 1, Peter said that we can forget that we were purged from our old sins. Now, if you're a Christian that walks according to the old way of life, the old corrupt man, you have forgotten the grand scheme of salvation. And the whole idea behind salvation was to change you, to sanctify you, to make you like the Lord Jesus Christ so that you can glorify Him. So we get stretched out in that relationship until it seems that we're far, far away from God. But in the relationship, it's not God that's moved. It's us. And so we have to watch sin. We have to guard this. Sin is falling from the steadfastness of the sureness of that relationship that we have with Christ. And so when holiness suffers, so will our closeness to the Lord suffer. Well, how do we prevent that from happening? Well, there are a couple of answers to the problem when we deal with sin. The first one would be that we need to sin less or not to sin at all. Uh, John said, 1 John 2, 1, he said, My little children, these things... Write I unto you that you sin not. So that's the first answer. Stop sinning. And then he told us what to do. The next part of that is what to do if you do sin. And he went on and he said, And if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Now, this evening, the lesson is about dealing with sin. What can we do about sin? Now, tonight, mostly, we're going to talk about what sin is. In the next lesson, we'll talk about how we can conquer it. But we have to understand what sin is. How does it get started? How does it manifest itself? And, and then we'll learn how we can deal with it. Now, if you would, let's turn to the book of James, chapter 1. And here, James gives a, a very clear outline for how sin develops. I don't really know of any other scripture in the Bible that explains it better than James does here. In James, chapter 1, and in verse number 12, James 1, verse number 12, he writes, Blessed is the man that endureth temptation, for when he is tried, he shall receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to them that love him. Let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. But every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. Then when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin, and sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. Now the downward progression into sin begins in verse number 14. But every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. Now this is the point that I made just a moment ago. Sin begins internally. The desire for sin is an internal desire. That's not something that's been supernaturally implanted by Satan. Within your human nature, there is all the potential for all the evil that could ever be done. Any one of us could have been born to, to be Hitler or Charles Manson or Osama bin Laden. Jesus said it's not the outside of a person that defiles the man. It's the thing that's in his heart. It's already there. I'm not going to take time to read it now, but you can 
Look back at Romans chapter 1, and there you can see all the things that we're capable of. People are capable of the worst kinds of sins. And yet I've heard people say, well, no, no, I've always been a good person. I've always loved God. And I can tell you that's not true because the Bible says it's not true. All of us are evil. We all love self, not God. And if we say that we've always loved God, either we are a liar or we call God a liar. And if you call God a liar, you can't possibly love him. There is none righteous, no, not one. That's what Scripture says. And that says that means me and it means you. But when we get saved, that old nature that caused the Romans 1 problem and the James 1.14 problem is still there. In salvation, we've been given the ability to deal with that old nature when before all we could ever do was just yield to it. But salvation gives us the ability to do something about the old nature. And that's the way that James begins here. What about that old nature? What's it doing in you? Well, the old lusts are there. And that's the problem that kicks sin off. That's what gets the ball rolling so that you enter into sin. The old nature is there. Now, notice he says, but every man is tempted. And so he starts an outline here that gives the stages of sin. That's what I want to look at tonight. I want to look at the stages of sin, how that it develops. Well, stage number one is temptation. Now, notice these words, lust and enticed. Those are words that suggest a very strong desire, and that desire is an inward desire. Now, while it's true, there are many things that are outwardly, that are outward that tempt you to sin, yet the ultimate desire that Satan works on is the, is the depraved human heart that's in you. That, it, it comes from the inside. Now, again, Jesus addressed that in Matthew chapter 15 when he said, it's not what goes into the mouth that defiles a man. He said, it's that which comes out. And the meaning of that is that sin arises from the wickedness of the heart because that's what man is by nature. But at that point, sin is not developed. There's temptation, but that's not sin. Being tempted to do something, that's not a sin. Now, sometimes Christians are, are very upset about this and they wonder, what's wrong with me because I, I'm so often tempted? And, and, and they're Christians, but they have these many tempting thoughts that are going on in their heads and they reason, there has to be something wrong with me. Why do I have all these temptations? Well, there is something wrong with you. You're human. That's what's wrong with you. You're human. Your problem is the same as everybody else's problem. You're a sinner by nature and by choice. That's not an excuse to sin, but that's the reason that you do. That's what's behind all of it. But the fact that you have a sinful nature and you have tempting thoughts does not make those thoughts sin. But they turn into sin when you dwell on them. Now, you can't keep certain thoughts from buzzing around in your head but you can keep them from building a nest in your hair. You can't let them stay there. The thoughts are there, but you don't have to act on the thoughts. Now, you can't allow them to have a lodging place in your mind because that tempting thought becomes something that you can fantasize about and something that you visualize. And when you dwell on that, then it becomes that sinful desire that you're not going to be able to resist. Now, let me pause for just a minute here just to show you how helpless that we are against our human nature. Do you ever sometimes dream about things that you would never do? Do you ever have a kind of dream where you have an evil dream and you wake up even shameful that you've had such a dream? 
Well, you can't necessarily control those kinds of things. Maybe you can suppress it somewhat because some of our dreams come from things that we've seen during the day, things that we've done during the day, and we might want to correct that. But many times we're going to dream about things that we shouldn't dream about. And when you wake up, you might want to keep that dream in your mind and you might just want to go ahead and fantasize about that dream. That's when it becomes a sin. Now, those kinds of things are a statement of the fallen nature. You're helpless without God's power because these things can even come to you in the middle of the night when you're uh, in a subconscious state. And if you dwell on those things when you get up, you can turn that into sin. All of that comes out of the fallen nature, a nature that you cannot conquer without divine power. But to go on here, you'll notice in verse number 13 that James says there is no temptation that comes from God. God will test you with many things, but he's not going to tempt you to do evil. God never uses reverse psychology on you, and that is to tempt you to sin, to get you to resist the sin, and thereby, thereby build your character. That's not the way that God works. So he's not going to come to you and tempt you to do the wrong thing. Now, when temptation degenerates into desire, it won't stop there. The next thing that it looks for is an opportunity. Enticement is the desire that seeks its opportunity. And a good way to see how that works is to look at David's sin with Bathsheba. Now, uh, with David, it began with David's lust. He, he saw something that he shouldn't have seen, and so instead of turning around and walking away from it and going back into the house, he lingered, and he got his mind full of it, he got his, his eyes full of it, and he had the desire. And then he looked to seize the opportunity, and he had Bathsheba brought to him. Now, his uh, opportunity was that his, her husband wasn't at home. Her husband Uriah was off in the battle. And so David had an opportunity, and David seized that opportunity, and then David entered into the next stage of sin's development, stage number two, and that is the act. Now, let me give you a word of caution. Don't be fooled into thinking that sin has not happened until there is a physical act. Now, since I mentioned David's sin, let's just use the sin of adultery as an example. Adultery is a sin that can happen before there is a physical act. Jesus told us that in Matthew 5, verses 27 and 28, which incidentally was a great shocker to the scribes and Pharisees who thought they were experts in the law. And Jesus said, "'Ye have heard that it hath been said by them of old time,' Thou shalt not commit adultery. But I say unto you that whosoever looketh on a woman to lust after her hath committed adultery with her already in his heart. Now let me take you back to point number one for just a minute. People have a lot of trouble with Matthew 5, 28. They learn that it's possible to commit mental adultery without ever touching a person. And so you might wonder, well, when, at what point does that tempting thought actually become a sin, actually become adultery that Jesus talks about. You've already committed adultery in your heart. When does that happen? You got a thought. When does it happen? Well, you, you can look at a person and a person of the opposite sex and you can find them to be attractive and uh, maybe you think they're beautiful or they are handsome, a reaction that often occurs when people first meet me. That can happen. Uh, but to notice a person, that's not sin. It's not a sin to notice a person. But to think about them and to continue to dwell on them, to visualize a relationship with them, that's what Jesus meant when he talked about committing adultery in your heart. 
The physical act is not there, but sin is there. Now, perhaps that aspect of sin might be a little bit confusing to us when we talk about mental things, and it's hard for us to determine when it actually becomes a sin. But acts themselves, we don't really have trouble with that, do we? We understand acts, acts of commission of sin. He says, then when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin. It doesn't take a lot of explanation to get people to understand acts. Read the Ten Commandments. There you see things like stealing and murder and lying and adultery and covetousness, disobedience to parents. I think skipping church is in there too. Whenever I deal with children uh, about salvation, you know, I want them to understand acts. What are, what are sins? Well, they're acts. And one of the first things, one of the things I always deal with with children when I'm talking to them about salvation, what about disobeying your parents? What is that? Is that a sin? None of the children ever miss that one. Yeah, we know that's a sin. That's a wrong thing to do. So they don't have any trouble understanding acts in that respect. So we don't really need to spend a lot of time on acts themselves. So the temptation is there. The desire is there. The opportunity is there. Then next comes the act. And when you're in the act, you're in the middle of sin. It's done. It's happened. But it's not done and over with. You only wish that that was the end of it, but it's not done and over with. Oh, how nice it would be if it all stopped right there, but it doesn't. Because once you go for it, you're going to have to deal with the consequences of it. Sin does not fade away. And that brings us to the next stage. Stage number three is the consequences. James says, Then when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin... And sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. The consequence of sin is death. It never ends any other way. Now, you go back to the Garden of Eden in the first sin. What did God say to Adam? What did he say is going to happen to you, Adam, if you eat of this tree? Well, Genesis 2, And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil thou shalt not eat of it, for in the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. So Adam, you eat of the tree, you're going to die. That's the consequence of sin. Now let's go back before that. Uh, sin entered into the world uh, in the garden, but sin entered in the universe, into the universe with Lucifer. And you remember what we've learned will happen to Lucifer? He's going to end up into the destruction of hell. That's the result of sin. It's always the consequence of sin. It is death. And so that's the way that God always deals with sin. There isn't any other way that God deals with sin. It's going to end up in the death of somebody. Sin ends in death. Adam sinned, and immediately the spirit in him died. Spiritual death is separation from God. It's to have spiritual life sucked out so that there is nothing remaining that is alive in the spiritual world. That's what happened with Adam. When he sinned, he was dead to God. And at that point, if that point was, was understood by more people, then they would understand how helpless that man really is. We can never come to God because spiritual life has been sucked out. It's gone so that we're dead to God. Well, Adam's sin also brought about physical death. It wasn't an immediate death. We know it took years for that to happen. God didn't create Adam for death. He gave him a body that would not die. Did you know that? Adam had a perfect body. It wouldn't die. 
And, and Adam would have lived in the Garden of Eden forever if he had perfectly obeyed God. He would have had a race. You know, that's a big argument about whether Adam and Eve would have actually had children if Adam never sinned. Uh, I don't think there's a way that we can actually answer that question. But if they had children and Adam didn't sin, then all, they all would have been happily ever after, kept on living happily ever after uh, in the garden, on this world, or whatever God would have to do with them. But Romans 5 says that Adam, because of Adam's sin, death has passed on all men and all have sinned. Well, here's a theological point for you. If Adam had not sinned, there wouldn't be a sinful nature. I think we can all agree with that. You don't sin, there's no sinful nature. But what if you take this, this, this uh, idea about sin, and right now, that if you could say, I, and this was true, that you could say, I have never committed a single sin since the day that I was born. Would you be able to go to heaven? Well, the answer to the question is no. And that's because sin is not only an act. Sin is also a state. We're not just sinful in our conduct, but we're also in a sinful state. So if you never sinned, you would still die. And that's because you're in a sinful state. Your body's going to wear out. That's one of the effects of the sinful state that afflicts you. Now, when Christ died, he died not only to take care of the sinful acts that we commit, but he also died to take care of the sinful state. That's what our glorification is. That's when God takes the body and he raises the body in a perfected state so it's never capable of sinning again. He takes away that possibility. It's a glorified body suited for life in heaven. Well, the next thing that you might say was, well, I am a Christian now, and I believe that Christ died to save me from my sins. Romans 8, chapter 1 says, there's no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. And that's true. It's true, and thank God that it is. But I would have to ask you still, is death a consequence for a Christian sin? And the answer to the question is still yes. On the spiritual side of things, the death of uh, the, the sin of man is the cause of Christ's death. You're not going to die in a permanent spiritual death, but Christ died because of it. Christ's death was the result of our sins, of the believer's sins, not a consequence of Joe Blow's sins, who never believed in Christ. And I'm not going to explain that statement right now. Some of you already know what I mean by that. But Christ's death is a consequence of the Christian sin. He died for you. That means that he died instead of you. Sin brought death, death, not your spiritual death, but it did bring Christ's death. Now, could you read Romans chapter 6 and reach any other conclusion than Christ's death is for Christians, only for Christians? Because we look here and we see, what, what did Christ's death accomplish? Well, what is it that he did? Well, we see here that his death destroyed the body of sin. That's in verse number 6. It causes life. That's in verse number 8. It, it overthrows sin's dominion. That's verse number 14. It frees from sin. That's in verse number 18. It makes you a servant of God in verse number 22. And it gives eternal life in verse number 23. That's the accomplishment of Christ's death for believers. Those are not hypothetical things that happen to unbelievers. Now, you can believe... Uh, uh, Another side of that, look at it in a different way and believe that Christ died for many, many people that his death had no benefit for, that did nothing for them. But I happen to believe that Christ's death was successful for all that it was intended for, not a failure for the majority whom it might have been attended, intended. But we'll leave that doctrine alone for now. 
So yes, death is a consequence for a believer's sin. Christ had to come and die for it. That's on the spiritual side. But what about the physical side? Is death a consequence of a believer's sin? Well, it, it is. We, we look at examples in the Bible. Uh, you take a look at Acts chapter 5 and Ananias and Sapphira. Sin caused their premature death, didn't it? God struck them down because of their sin. And then you look what Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 when he was dealing with the Lord's Supper with the, with the uh, people at Corinth. And he said, some of you have died because you've taken the Lord's Supper unworthily. Now that's a point that I intend to bring before you every time that we come to a Lord's Supper observance. That we're very careful about that. That we don't take the Lord's Supper unworthily. Have you ever done that? Have you ever come to the Lord's Supper and you've just been sinning and... And you partake of the Lord's, uh, the, the bread there that's on the table that represents his body, the, the cup that represents his blood, and you just come and you have sin in your heart that's unconfessed, and you take that and you do it unworthily. Are you brave enough to do that? Oh, I'd say you must be some kind of a brave soul to tempt God by doing things like that. Now, when you sin, you're not done with it. Now, if God doesn't kill you for it, thank God that he doesn't. He doesn't always kill people because of sin. If he did, I wouldn't have anybody to preach to. I mean, I'd, I'd, be, I'd be Noah. I'm the only righteous one that's here. And so uh, I wouldn't have anybody to preach to. But God doesn't kill us for sinning. But we are sure that there are consequences that have to be dealt with. Now, let me return to adultery for just a minute. Sexual sin gets a lot of traffic in the Bible. Have you noticed how much the Bible talks about that? I mean, it's just over and over again because that's such a prevalent sin, one that's so difficult to get rid of. Now, the Bible authors tread that ground of adultery in passage after passage. And when Jesus took it to another level by telling the Pharisees that you could actually sin and commit adultery in your mind, then he just took sin to a whole different level in the New Testament. He put it in a whole different light. And so we see it's very, very difficult. But here's the thing. Could we say, though, that the consequences of mental adultery would be the same as the physical act? Well, we know that there are different consequences for different sins. Some are more serious than others. Uh, would the mental act have caused Uriah to be killed? If David had stopped at mental adultery, would, a lot, would Uriah have died? No. If David had stopped at mental adultery, would a child have died? No. So you see there are different consequences for sin. But there are consequences. You can't escape the consequences. I had a conversation with someone a few weeks ago who said they didn't feel like God had forgiven them of sin. This person felt terrible about it, and, and they were going through chastisement for it. The mental aspect of it was terribly unbearable. Now, if you're a Christian, the Scripture says that if you confess your sins, that God will forgive you of your sins. This person was a Christian and said, I have confessed my sin, but I still feel guilty. I still feel like God hasn't forgiven me. But that's what God promises. He said, I will forgive you of your sins. He said, I'm going to cleanse you from all of your unrighteousness. But God never said, God never said, you won't have to deal with the consequences of it. There's still consequences there. So if you commit adultery, will God forgive you? Well, yes, he'll forgive you, but he's not going to take away the consequences. If you repent and confess, that doesn't mean that God's going to put your marriage back together. That doesn't mean that, that there's going to be trust back in your marriage again if you do get back together. God doesn't promise that. There are consequences to it. And I hope you understand that, that sin is never worth it. Married people ought to be faithful to one another because God has made them one flesh, 
It pleases the Lord. It glorifies God. It shows that we accept the Lordship of Christ when there's fidelity in marriage. That's why God chose marriage to be an emblem of the church. Now, the number one reason that you ought to be faithful in marriage is to honor Christ. That's the number one reason. But that doesn't mean there aren't other reasons. There are other very good reasons to be faithful in a marriage. Now, I have to be honest with you, and, and uh, here's the truth of the matter. I have a strong motivation to be faithful to my wife. Now, I love the Lord, of course, but I don't want my wife to be my, the Lord's instrument to kill me. I mean, I, 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 I don't want her to stab me in my sleep. I don't want her to do what... You remember the story of, of uh, Jael and Sisera? How that... Uh, now, they weren't married... But Sisera went into Jael's tent to try to hide, and she uh, was kind to him, and she gave him a bottle of milk, and then he got sleepy, and she covered him up very gently and let him go to sleep. Then she went out, and she got a tent peg and came back in and drove it through his temple and nailed his head to the ground. You know, I think about that every time I go to a camp pioneer camp out. That's why my wife and I don't camp. I don't want to make anything like that, that happen to me. But anyway, the place that I'm going with this thing is that one of the chief reasons that I would never cheat on my wife is because that one act of sensual pleasure would ruin everything that I am. It would ruin everything. Just one act, just one small act. Well, not small, I don't think. That would ruin the confidence that you have in me forever. It would. And, and uh, I, I, all these years, I, I would never do that because not only would it hurt her, it would hurt me, it would hurt you, and it hurts God. And I won't do it because there are consequences for it. And I don't understand why Christians get mixed up in things like that because I've seen Christians that have been set aside and their lives never amount to anything because they've entered into the sin of adultery. Sin has consequences. The end of sin is always bitter. It brings death. And God never said that a Christian is going to escape consequences. You're not immune to them. Well, I'm out of time now. We're getting a little bit past seven here. But let me mention just one more aspect of consequences. There are many that are in, the, in this life. Uh, it, it's very serious in life. But here's another word of caution for you. Don't make the mistake of thinking that Romans 8 verse 1 means that there is no eternal consequence for the sin of Christians. Now remember, Romans 8, 1 says, There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. Uh, and so you might think by that, well, that means there are, no, there are no eternal consequences for sin. But there actually are. Now I mentioned this last week, I think it was, on this subject. And uh, I don't understand all this. I freely admit that I don't. What Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3 he said, every man's work shall be made manifest, for the day shall declare it, because it shall be revealed by fire, and the fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. If any man's work abide, which he hath built thereupon, he shall receive a reward. If any man's work shall be burned, he shall suffer loss, but he himself shall be saved, yet so as by fire. Now that's a verse that tells us that sin is going to affect Christians for eternity. We're going to stand before the judgment seat of God, and he's going to examine us. He's going to look at everything that we've done. Now, he's not going to condemn us to hell. That's not what I'm talking about. That's because of Romans chapter 8, verse number 1. There is no condemnation. He means there is no judgment for you. You're not going to go to hell because of your sin. But there is a judgment for it in some way. 
Now, he, if, if, he'll look at the righteous deeds that we've done. He'll look at the sins that we've done. And thank God for this. I, I don't believe that our sins are going to be exposed like they will for the lost person. I think a lost person's sin are going to be exposed for all the world to see. I don't think Christ is going to do that for the believer. I think that we'll stand individually before Jesus Christ. And I'll tell you something, there's just something about that gaze that he's going to give as he discusses our sin with us. Sin brings the loss of eternal rewards. Now, I'll tell you, I don't understand all that that means. And if somebody says they can tell you what that means, then I'll tell you they have more insight than the Word of God has actually given. I don't understand what all that means, how God's going to deal with it, but there's something there. The Bible teaches us that rewards will enhance the joy of heaven. And so every sin that's committed is going to diminish that joy in some way. Eternity is forever. So you have to think about it. Is it worth losing out forever? Is it worth losing the rewards forever? You know, Chuck asked me a question one time. He said, is it forever? Is it forever and ever? And I said, yes, it's forever and forever and forever and forever and still forever. That's how long that eternity is. And the consequences of sin are serious. They are forever. And so that means that sin is just not worth it. Stay away from it. Remember what John says. He says, I wrote these things. I'm encouraging you not to sin. It is not worth it. Now, I need to stop there. I don't want to stop there, but I, I need to. Sin develops out of temptation, desire, and opportunity. And once you get there, next comes the act. And once you do the act, you're neck deep into it. And then the next thing is going to be the consequences. We've all been there, haven't we? We've all done that. We're all human. It's happened to all of us. The sad thing is, we continue to do it. When are we going to stop? How can we stop? That's what we're going to talk about the next time. It is possible to overcome sin. It is possible to live a victorious Christian life. That'll be the subject when we come back. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the truth that we learn from it. Lord, we see sin and how it develops. And Lord, uh, the old nature is still in us. It has to be put down. We pray, Lord, you'll help us to do that. Help us to conquer sin in our lives. Help us to turn away from it. And Lord that we won't have to suffer the consequences of it. Not in this life and not in the one to come. So, Lord, be with us. Bless your children. Bless this church. May we be what you would have us to be by living holy and righteous lives and not surrendering to the devil's temptations that he puts before our eyes every single day. Help us to live for Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Roanoke Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Ronert Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org.